1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amari Everett phillips the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Lorenzo Costaguda about his new book, Workers of All Colors Unite, Race and the Origins of American Socialism. Dr. Lorenzo Costaguda, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone, and thank you very much for having me here. Absolutely. We love having you here. And so, Dr. Cascola, I wonder if you could just begin the interview just by telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm
2: originally from Italy. I did my BA and a master's in Italy, and then I've been living in the UK for around 10 or a bit more years. And in this time, uh, I did my PhD here in the UK and a got a job. And yeah. And then I ended up writing a book about the US and people are very confused about all these different um, origins and like nationalities involved in this project. But hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about this.
1: Absolutely. And I have to ask you, how. What, what do you think of the UK being there for 10 years? How do you like it?
2: I like it very much. I'm very, very happy in the uh, academic environment. I think it's great. We've had a bit of problems recently but uh, only with Brexit and all that. But all in all, things are actually very, very good. It's a great place to work with many connections with the United States that being a lecturer in United States history, it's kind of very
1: important. So it's a great situation, really. Awesome. Awesome. Well, talking about this work, how how did you come to this project? Well, um,
2: yeah, there is a lot to say about this, this question. It's been in the making for a long time. Um, but yeah, I want to start by saying two things that are more connected, as, uh, as I was just mentioning to my personal biography, and one that is more connected to the way in which practically I get to this project. Uh, the first two are more like, I've always had a sort of a fascination for the history of the left. Uh, I come from a country that used to have the largest communist party uh, in Western Europe with a very strong tradition of, like radicalism. And that kind of filtered through in my decisions on what to focus on for my undergrad and postgraduate dissertations, really. Um, I added to that a focus on the United States. And I came to this from the angle of like trying to understand uh, the old conundrum, like the big capitalist country that doesn't have apparently like a socialist party, a labor party, a strong left-wing tradition. And that was really something that spiked my attention when I was trying to figuring out what to focus on for my for my research. When I moved to the UK and when I started uh, talking with my supervisor at the University of Nottingham, which is uh, Dr. Christopher Phelps, um, he kind of added, we, I was already focused on like the period of the Gilded Age. I liked that period because I thought it was the moment in which American capitalism becomes what it is now to a certain extent. Kind of, that's the moment in which the country goes from like being a kind of a rural environment to be a globally significant industrial superpower. Um, so that was the period. Uh, I was fascinated by all the problems connected to immigration and to the role of immigrants in the country in turning the U.S. into a capitalist superpower. Um, But at the same time, and this is like the contribution of my supervisor, uh, he was like, you cannot really have a project on like socialism, immigration, without adding a significant angle on race. And he was absolutely right. I mean, 100%. I, I don't know how I missed that. But then looking at my background, I kind of understand. There is a very strange situation when you talk about race. Being in Europe especially certain parts of Europe, or being in the U.S., the conversation is very different. Not so much in the U.K. The U.K. is a bit of an in-between place between the two, continental Europe and the U.S. Uh, but, like, for example, in Italy, you you still get a lot of, like even today, uh, the idea that people shouldn't be talking about race at all. Uh, race is really something in the past, linked to biological ideologies of race, and like we shouldn't really be having a conversation about it. I haven't presented my book in Italy, but I'm absolutely sure that when I go and do that, people will be asking, why do you have the word race in the title? Um, And so I came to this topic uh, with these two kind of fascinations that come from my own personal background. But then when it comes to like defining the type of sources that I use and the specificity of my book, um, there is another like element to add, which is, i started this project with a slightly different idea in mind it was more like a collective biography of several leaders of the socialist labor party Uh, we are going to mention uh, more details about it but it's the party that is founded in 1876 it's like the first socialist party founded in the us with a national dimension and i wanted to do this collective biography and i when i hit the archives i realized that the project that i had in mind was not really feasible But there was another project there sitting and waiting for someone to be picked up and uh, be done, which was a project based on the uh, labor press and the socialist press, um, where there was a massive ongoing conversation about race and about the problems that race was creating on the workplace. And by reading through these like multitudes of local newspapers, which were historians of the 19th century don't know this very well, were the ways in which people were talking to each other. It was very lively as a debate opportunity. Um, reading through these columns of like newspapers in German, especially, but also in English, I figured out that there you had really a, uh, a conversation that needed to be reconstructed on the relationship between uh, problems connected to race and the developing of an American socialist movement.
1: And so, early in your work, uh, you actually separate out these sort of two ways you say that highlight how socialists approach, approach racial diversity. Uh, can you take us to take us through what those two ways are? Yeah,
2: um, I speak about like areas of opinion. These are like two broad. Um, ways of in which uh, socialists in the SLP approach the problem of race. The first one I term it in the book scientific racialism. I use the term racialism rather than racism because I want to make a distinction that I'm going to explain in a second. But the idea for this like large um, groups of socialists uh, is that uh, what they do is essentially taking the theories of race over the time Uh, which is a bit of a patchwork of several different ideologies. It can be Darwinism, it can be social Darwinism, it can be anthropology at some point, it can be eugenics, even though the Gilded Age is a bit early for that. Um, And they kind of use that as essentially scientific evidence, because at the time, these evolutionists, strongly evolutionists, Uh, set of theories is very much perceived as like the cutting edge uh, scientific approach of the time and they kind of say we need to find a way to square this scientific evidence with Marxism. These people tend to be uh, all Marxist Um, and so they try to find a way to integrate these two mismatching um, ideologies and this is one group. The other group I term, it, I term them, them internationalists. And they are normally former members of the First International, um, the organization started by Marx and others in London in 1864. Um, they come from a background in which trade unionism is very important. Uh, they want to focus extensively on class rather than race. They understand class is much more important than race, they actually say, we need to be focusing on class and leave race aside. And so you have these two groups that really uh, clash with one another in the SLP. And this is essentially the history that I tell in the book.
1: How with these two positions, how, how does this reflect sort of this overall socialist position on class organization? And also, how does it sort of affect the overall argument that you have for your work? Yeah,
2: um, there is a, I mean, I make the point that there is a sort of a clear link between the ways in which these two positions are articulated and the ways in which the party um, behaves or like the history of the party develops across the Gilded Age. Um, on one hand, you have the scientific rationalists, Whose goal is, tends to be trying to be more in touch and closer um, to the positions that you find on the ground. These are moments in which Chinese anti-Chinese sentiments are at the very peak. Nativism is very much present. Um, and therefore, these people, they tend to be people that want to run at the elections, and that want to have a kind of an electoral politics strategy for the party. And therefore, these approaches that are kind of flirting in one way or another with these scientific theories of race, they tend to be much more compatible with running uh, on the ballot because they kind of go in line with the positions that you find among the voting communities in the areas in which the SLP is radicated that tend to be in the Northeast and the Midwest and the West as well, even though not so much. Um, we are talking about mostly white, war- white voters that are attuned with this idea that we should be focusing on whites and not necessarily on Russian minorities. On the other hand, you have the internationalists whose strategy is really incompatible with uh, this approach. Uh, they tend to be focusing more on trade unionism. Um, not because they they want to run away from electoral politics. They kind of they tend not to believe in electoral politics. They tend not to believe to be convinced that democracy and the way in which it works in the United States uh, is really compatible with achieving any sort of like class equality, which is what they aim at. Um, what they think is much more important, important: focusing on improving the working conditions of people, and in this way. Um, this is like the link with race, you kind of lift everyone up so uh, you can have an appeal that goes across racial lines and you don't really need to go after the ideologies that you find, but you can really be consistent with your message of equality. So by focusing on class um, and by leaving race aside, you can really be consistent with working class internationalism but you can only do that in the context of Gilded Age United States through trade unionism and not through the ballot box.
1: And so at points in time in the book, you, you sort of view the history of socialism in the United States um, through leaders of the movement and Leaders of the party, right? Um, so I'm wondering, why did you make the decision to sort of look at these leaders, uh, and what do we learn about sort of these shifting ideas of race and racial integration by viewing sort of the actions that these leaders take?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, focusing on um, on leaders to an extent um, was a necessity um, because I'm I was dealing with um, sources that were not really helpful in trying to reconstruct the ranking file. I mean, my, I started with this project with the idea of like, um, trying to understand what was going on at different levels in the socialist community, in general terms, but um, the only like individuals i could focus on for the near fact that when you look at newspapers and 19th century newspaper i understand omar you also are a 19th century historian so you know the problem well um you look at these articles and they are never signs and so mapping really the opinions of individual members that were not the leaders was kind of very difficult if not impossible this party that i was focusing on the slps as more party, uh, didn't keep any list of members, uh, so you kind of know some, you know the individualities, you kind of know some of the leaders, not just the big, the important leaders, but many, but tracing a history that is like a something resembling a history from below is really impossible, at least I didn't manage to do that, but at the same time, what I did was like picking leaders that were giving opinions and like different types of positions and the other thing that I did, which I do very often in the book, is like using letters or using like sources from coming from the ranking file, responses, so that you can trace the debate. And it's not just the voices of the leaders, but it's also like what is going on uh, at the base level and how they are they are kind of responding to that. And in this way, it kind of helped me to trace the history of the institution. I try to balance like intellectual and institutional history in this book. And that's focusing on the leaders helped me telling the history of what is going on in the party.
1: Yeah. Did you find that hard to sort of balance the like intellectual, like and institutional portions of this history? And how did you ultimately sort of get to a point where you're like, this is the sort of ratio that I like or that, that I want in this narrative?
2: Yeah, I struggled. I struggled because, at the very beginning, i I was kind of interested. I was in. I've always been interested in institutional history, of the party. Um, but at the same time, I kind of uh, understood that there were this um, racial co- conversation on race and debate about ideas was, to an extent, much more relevant because it allowed my story to be in touch with much broader issues that are ongoing at the time. I mean, the kind of questions that these people are trying to answer are the same questions that people in different institutions, organizations, and across the entire spectrum of the American working class, people are trying to solve. Whereas the history of the SLP, which ultimately is a small party, is something that might be relevant for people that study Marxism or the left, but it's... Sort of a secondary story in a moment in which there are other left wing organizations that are much more powerful and influential than the SLP. So um, I tried to kind of balance the two, keeping in mind these priorities, uh, even though there was a moment in which I was much more on the institutional, but then I realized that that didn't really make sense and I rebalanced the two. Wonderful.
1: Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the organization of this book then. So uh, in chapter one, you look at sort of socialist ideas of race and ethnicity, both sort of before the Civil War and then also after the Civil War. It's a really fascinating uh, chapter. Uh, can you take us through how socialists viewed the connection between sort of socialism and race, uh, both before and after Reconstruction?
2: Um. Yeah, I mean, in this chapter, I, I tried to, like, explain the way in which this connection between socialism and race was really uh, changing at the time. Um, Before the Civil War, uh, the point I make is, I mean, the first point is like internal to the development of the left in the United States, but also globally. Um, This book tends to trace the way in which especially the Marxist left develops in the United States. Uh, but for the antebellum period, talking about a Marxist left doesn't really make sense. Socialism in that moment is really like a mixed bag of different approaches coming from Europe and developing in different ways, also on the basis of the context of what people, mainly immigrants, were finding when they were arriving in the United States. So I used different leaders to kind of explain the different positions. Um, But uh, the broad point that I make is that in this period, the conversation about race within the broad area of the socialist movement is very much linked to slavery, which is unsurprising. Um, But uh, slavery is absolutely pivotal for this generation of people that tend to be German immigrants. They arrive to the United States. They come from a background of radicalism. They are Republican, small r. Um, They are... um, Supporters of democracy. They are supporters of equality. They arrive to the United States and they cling to the battle against slavery as a way to kind of um, use the radicalism that they are bringing from Europe. In Europe, it was very much a battle against authoritarianism. It was a battle for democracy. Uh, The target in the U.S. changes and the target in the U.S. tends to become slavery. These people are also anti-racist. So they are not just against slavery in itself. They are anti-racist as well. They tend to see things through the prism of class, uh, but they are unified by having a common target, which is what you see missing in the post bellum period. Because as long as there is a target, which is the abolition of slavery, these people kind of stick together and... Um, what they say can be told in a kind of a unified way. What happens afterwards um, is complicated and it's linked to the many complications that you have ongoing in Reconstruction in the United States. Um, What happens is there isn't a, a consolidation, an institutional consolidation of what is happening in the left, German immigrant left, Uh, inspired by Marxism, by early Marxism in the United States, uh, because the First International is founded, and that is an institution that kind of attracts people that verge in that political area. Um, But the First International is a kind of a difficult moment, if you want. Um, To a certain extent, the problem is that uh, members of the First International, uh, they tend to go along with that trend that is very common after the civil war it's very common in the trade unions it's very common across the country Uh, the radical republicanism the idea that is coming from the trade union movement that is developing at the time of like we have emancipated black labor now we need to emancipate white labor Um, which is to an extent a problematic ideology because it's kind of flattening what was happening to Winchester Slavery, and at the same time, uh, making the implicit uh, jump, logical jump, which is not very logical, that now labor is white, whereas labor isn't white. I mean, labor is like uh, multiracial after the Civil War, and different racial groups have different problems. So in the context of what happens in uh, the socialist movement after the civil war, you really have like an unclear recognition. Again, an an adherence to anti-racist values, but an unclear recognition of the specific circumstances of racial minorities, especially the specific circumstance of the African-American community that is going through a moment that, as we know very well, has much potential but at the same time, is a social condition that is incredibly fragile. Um, members of the First International don't recognize the importance of voting rights in this moment or defending voting rights, defending the civil rights of African Americans. Um, they stick to the equality that they were um, professing before uh, the war, but the way in which that is translated after the Civil War uh, is not as coherent, successful, or like clearly linked to the defense on the ground of racial equality in the same way as it was before the war.
1: And so chapter two looks at the sort of founding of the SLP uh, in 1876 and the divide and sort of membership that, you, that we sort of spoke about earlier. Um, could you take us through why was there a need to actually um, create this party? Um, how did this sort of divide happen? And how does this sort of then sort of fit into this larger narrative as we're sort of moving towards uh, the, the last sort of chapters of this book?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the foundation of the SLP, which is not called the SLP at the beginning, is called Walking Man Party of the United States in in 1876. It's a bit of a strange um, story, but very important and kind of forgotten as well. I mean, this is 1876. It's like uh, the country celebrating the centennial. Um, You have a small group of socialist leaders coming from like different parties across the country. They all meet in Philadelphia, of course. Um, And amongst them is the secretary of what has remained what is left of the First International, which is this guy called Friedrich Sorge. And they meet and they kind of federate these four different parties, including the First International into this new national organization. This is mapped onto what is going on in Germany. In Germany, at the same time, the supporters of Marx and supporters of Lasalle are federating together in what will become the Social Democratic Party uh, of Germany. Um, And the problem with the US version of that is that from the very beginning, you have this distinction between those that support trade unionism and those that support uh, running at the elections, that is already creating problems. These two factions kind of find an agreement. Um, It is an agreement that it's kind of, I mean, if you read the the minutes of the Congress are hilarious, uh, like many, because they kind of get to an agreement at the very last minute, but it's clear that it's not gonna uh, hold which uh, it doesn't, so it kind of immediately explodes. And you have this debate between people that say, okay, the SLP shouldn't be running at the elections, absolutely, we should be focusing on trade unionism, and other people that start running at the elections with their small sections in several parts of the country. Um, And curiously, what happens is that 1877, the Great Strike happens, And you would expect the great strike to be in favor of the trade unionists and kind of to have that faction winning within the party. But it's actually the other way around. Um, Because what happens with 1877 is that the SLP actually finds itself at the very center of the action in many industrial cities, Chicago, Cincinnati, New York, um, and St. Louis. And they reap the benefit in terms of like electoral politics. All the candidates that they run they have been. They get voted massively by people that were striking in nineteen seventy seven, um, and eventually, uh, this has a, like a significant impact on the party because the people that want to support the electoral ballots are the one that win the ones that win the debate within the party. So they remain within the SLP, whereas the people that kind of support trade unionism end up slowly going out of the party. Uh, you find them you find this leadership um, in active in other organization like the Knights of Labor in the 1880s. So you have this strange situation in which you have the SLP that remains stuck with the scientific rationalists, whereas the internationalists kind of not all of them, but kind of trickle out of the party and they end up in other, organizations. So um, it's a very important shift that explains the history of organized socialism in this moment of the Gilded Age. Absolutely.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person.
1: And so, chapters uh, three, four, and five all deal with sort of the uh, some of the sort of prevalent ethnic questions of the nineteenth century. Right. So, chapter three looks at the Chinese question. Chapter four looks at sort of the Negro question, and chapter five looks at the Indian question. Uh, So, I'm wondering, can you take us through how socialists navigated and sort of engaged with these different ethnic questions? Yes.
2: Um, I mean, the first thing to say about this is that. With these three chapters, uh, what I try to do is essentially explaining the way in which the. It's very difficult to talk about like a race question in the US because there are so many, uh, and each of them has different features, and it's kind of very linked to the specific like social, political, economic backgrounds of these communities, and like the local circumstances of like these people and how they are involved in what is going on at the time. So um talking about race in this moment means talking about a million of different problems and what i what i try to do with these three chapters is kind of representing this um this diversity and every now and then i kind of get asked if i can give like a, an argument for these this three together and it really is impossible because these three are really going in different directions and the small group of people that are tracing in the book, they really behave in different ways according to like the different problems that you talk about. Uh, going in order, I mean, um, on Chinese immigration and on the Chinese question, the first thing to say is that this is by far the problem that is discussed more by socialists at the time. It's present. It's everywhere in the news all the time. Um, it's no coincidence that 8082 is the year in which the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed. This is the moment in the country in which the conversation is at its peak. Um, but the way in which I, I discuss and I try to like, use the chapter to explain what is going on in the movement is uh, I focus very much on the West Coast where this debate is happening. And of course, there you have the success of the Working Men's Party of California, which has no relation with the SLP. Um, it's born in like similar circumstances, but uh, the SLP has a very strange relationship with this movement because it's essentially fascinated by the success because the Workingmen's Party in California is doing incredibly well um, and it's kind of representing the working class of California. But at the same time, as we all know, the Workingmen's Party of California is deeply racist. And its message is very much against Chinese immigration. So um, again, this is like encapsulating the problem that those that want to go with the electoral politics have. What do we do? We do we go with the people or we stick to our principles? They end up not doing anything and like being kind of caught in between the two positions. But I I also use the debate about Chinese immigration to explain the dynamics of racialization of like socialist ideologies. And I do that with a couple of examples of like people that uh, and like members that kind of articulate vehemently the situation of exploitation which Chinese immigrants find themselves at the time. They are very detailed and the level of detail and understanding of what is happening in San Francisco and the communities across the country is much more significant in terms of like giving, explaining what is going on than for many of the other questions that I talk about. Um, So this shows you that kind of socialists have a clear understanding of the dynamic of exploitation that is going on in in Chinese communities, which is to an extent, a bit more complicated than that, because as we know, uh, the standard accusation is that these people were indentured workers. Um, even though, again, that's a problematic category, because for many Chinese immigrants coming to the U.S. at the time is an opportunity, and they kind of do that because they want to do that, and they know it's going to be temporary. They're fine. They are in a dynamic in an exploitative dynamic, but. The socialist sources have a sort of understanding of this, and they kind of understand that there is exploitation ongoing, but they never manage to go past the racial barrier. They never manage to kind of, you have these very detailed articles in which people say, okay, these are exploited workers, and then they end up by saying, and that's why they should go back to China, which is like, no. Why don't you end up by being logical with your own position and kind of saying, and that's why we need to defend them. No. And that's race operating. It's very clear that that is what is going on. So I use this um, question to kind of explain how deep uh, rational ideologies are uh, pervading the ways in which socialists at the time think. Um, on African Americans, there is kind of a, a set of like different questions that I that I tackle. Um, the SLP, to one, to one, on one hand, on one hand, is the party, the Socialist Party, that uh, take it takes a fairly clear stance on the issue. They have a resolution in which they kind of appeal to class solidarity across uh, Russia lines, both from the north and in the south. Um, and they kind of endorse this position on, on class solidarity. They, there, is a, there is an African-American membership in the SLP, even though it's, it's very difficult to kind of understand the numbers for the problem that I was uh, talking about earlier. Um, but at the same time, there are a set of like missed opportunities. Um, the reality is that of a socialist movement that is mostly active in the areas of the country in which um, the least amount of African-Americans are living at the time. So you have a, like, a mismatch in terms of socialist movement being very strong in the North uh, and in the, c- the industrial cities in the Midwest in a moment in which more than 90% of African-Americans are still in the South. And in, in the South, the SLP is non-existent at all. But at the same time, I kind of, on basis on this reality, what I did was kind of looking at the circumstances in which this pattern was kind of breaking up. And places like New Orleans, for example, or St. Louis, or Cincinnati, so like industrial city in the south, or cities on like the border, um, in which you have sizable African-American communities and a strong presence, especially in St. Louis and in Cincinnati, of um, African-Americans uh, and the SLP as well. So um, looking at these uh, cities, you kind of see that um, in some cases, for example, in, uh, in Cincinnati you have the very interesting and fascinating leadership of Peter H. Clark um, who is probably the first African-American um, socialist that is member of the National Executive Committee is kind of very present in the life of the party, um, but he's the typical character that despite being very much on board with the idea that you need to tackle together race and class uh, and explaining that in incredibly clear terms, is um, also the leader that knows that if you want to tackle the problems of the African-American community, you cannot do that from within a party that is too weak to defend the position and the rights of African-Americans. And at the same time, you see what is going on on the other side, like a party that is very much uh, German, very immigrant, and is kind of dealing with different sets of problems, and is not prioritizing what is going on in the African-American communities and essentially not understanding the specific situation in which African-Americans are. So uh, I try to explain this in a kind of very regional and local uh, way to kind of reconstruct the broader dynamic of what is happening. I say a couple of words about Native Americans and then I wrap up because I'm, I've been talking for quite a long time now. Um, on Native Americans, um, this is like a this is like a, a fascinating and very important aspect of the problem. Um, and I kind of divide the chapter into two. On one hand, I want to make clear the fact that uh, socialists um, use very often um, clearly anti-colonial language um, to defend the rights of Native Americans on the frontier. I mean, this the Gilded Age, as we know, is the moment in which the frontier is allegedly closed, by the end of it. even though that doesn't really mean much because the clashes continue uh, everywhere. Native Americans are still there and the frontier is like an imagined idea uh, that we owe to Turner, but that doesn't really have a significance. But what um, what the socialists see is the fact that from their own perspective, this uh, rhetoric that is very much around at the time of like, African, uh, Native Americans being savage, doesn't really square with what they see in capitalist America. So what they say is like they flip the script and they say, actually these people, Native American people are the civilized one because they've been untouched by the savagism that is unleashed on uh, our society by capitalism. So it's like a rhetorical move, but it's incredibly powerful in articulating an anti-capitalist message. So you have a lot of that in what socialists write at the time about the question. But at the same time, uh, you also have that framework that I was talking about at the beginning, uh, the evolutionary idea, the idea that kind of human beings develop according to like different stages. And you go from like barbarism and savagism to civilization. So it's this framework that is very much in contradiction with the previous rhetoric about savagism and capitalism and so on and so forth. Um, But that socialists struggle enormously to step outside because essentially there is no any sense of like cultural relativism existing And uh, therefore, for them, really moving outside the idea that you can interpret or understand Native American communities as something different, that doesn't need to be placed on the same single direction, developmental path in which other cultures of the world are, is something that no one really from my reading of the sources and from my findings uh, managed to articulate as a position in the socialist movement. Uh, one thing to wrap up, um, despite my attempts in these three chapters, um, the focus and the voices of the people that are speaking up very much the socialists rather than uh, Native Americans in chapter five, or Chinese immigrants in chapter three, uh, it's a bit different in chapter four. Um, It's a struggle in terms of like limitations of the sources themselves. Uh, And so the gaze is like people talking about these questions more than an exchange that for my finding didn't really happen. So.
1: And so chapter six then looks at sort of a very understudied period of time in U.S. history in terms of the 1890s and uh, the way the SLP moves from an immigrant party to what you describe as sort of a bit more mature, sort of English-speaking, nationally organized party. Um, and so I'm wondering, what, what sort of role does this shift have on the party, the movement, and also these ideas of sort of racial integration as well?
2: Yeah, um, there is a like a major shift in what is going on um, in the party which reflects on what is happening in the country in general Uh, this is a moment in which like immigration is uh, taking momentum but it's also coming from different parts of Europe and the world um, which also means that certain communities that were at the very center of the party like the German community or the Jewish community are kind of growing in importance and becoming more integrated. And that favors the creation of a sort of a multi-ethnic coalition. Um, You have like the English speaking workers that are kind of coming in the movement and like making the ideology, the socialist ideology, much more Americanized and German groups that stop being like maybe isolated and they kind of become much more important in the social fabric of, of the time. Um, I also argue that uh, this kind of provokes a change in the way in which um, race is interpreted and understood within the party. And this debate between like, the scientific racialists and the uh, working class internationalists is solved. is solved to an extent with a much more uh, clear adherence to the second position, so a class-focused socialism becomes really what the ideology that is organizing the SLP uh, in the 1890s. Um, it is due to the fact a change in leadership, uh, a leadership that is much more openly Marxist, embracing a version of Marxism that is not a pure version of Marxism, which doesn't exist, by the way. Um, but like a sort of like a very uh, specific version in which this focus on class is very important. Um, and at the same time, yeah, like the Americanization of the party uh, and like this creation of a, like multi-ethnic is what is making the party in the, in the 1890s uh, much more important, much more relevant on the scene, uh, much more present. Um, But at the same time, I also argue by the end of the 1890s, it's this precarious equilibrium and the falling apart of this precarious equilibrium that is kind of uh, putting an end to a period of significance of the SLP and transitioning into uh, the next phase of what uh, the socialist movement in the US is which I don't cover in the book. I cover in the conclusions. You want me to say something on the conclusions? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, go for
2: it, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the the key date here is 1899, which is the moment in which the SLP as a party kind of split, falls apart, and the way in which it falls apart is by, like, uh, forcing very much on the Americanization of the party. There is a leader in particular, Daniel De Leon, that is very much focusing on that, Uh, With very problematic takes and many policies, Uh, but also, I argue, on this like makeup, ethnic and Russian makeup of the party. Um, By trying to impose a very rigid version of Marxism into the party, uh, he provokes a split uh, that leads essentially the SLP to divide into two groups. Uh, One of them would be joining. Debs and a group of other socialists in the Socialist Party of America that is founded in 1901. And that is really the party that leads the next phase uh, of American socialism. I argue that there is a clear line that goes from the SLP to the SPA in terms of like embracing this idea uh, that class should be the main focus uh, with some kind of attention to what is going, going on to the Russian minorities that remains is there in the SLP and remains in the
1: SBA as well. And so what sort of audience did you imagine for this work?
2: I mean, the first audience that I have in mind, of course, is um, academics interested in a range of issues that could be like labor, uh, race, the history of radicalism, the history of socialism, the history of the Gilded Age. Um, like different periods. I hope that this book will interest also scholars that do like German history, for example. There's a lot of like German immigrants in the book, as you know, um, and like immigration studies in general. Um, But I also hope that is a book that could be interesting for people that are not in academia, but want to learn a bit more about the uh, background, especially the background of like terms of radical movements, uh, racial relations in the country and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it it has a message that kind of goes beyond the specific academic messages uh, and like arguments that you can find in the book. Absolutely.
1: And what do you want readers to take away from your book?
2: Um, I would say, I mean, I'm gonna be slightly controversial here, but I started with the idea of like the problem of like the United States not having a socialist party and the problem of the U.S. not having a left. I think that the point that one of the strongest points that I want to make in the book is that actually that's not true. I mean, the U.S. has a massive and fascinating history on the left. And it's a history that is incredibly important, not only for what happens in the U.S., but for what happens across the world. It's very necessary to kind of link What happens in the United States with what is happening in Europe and other parts of the world? Because, I mean, we kind of, we talk about a moment in which imperialism, empires, and like, colonization is rife across the world. Uh, the Gilded Age. I mean, if you step outside from the US, you don't call it the Gilded Age, you call it the Victorian era, you call it whatever, the Belle Époque, or whatever you want to call it. But the end of the 19th century, and the beginning of the 20th century, are a crucial moment in which so many global dynamics are ongoing. And this is a story that needs to be placed in that context. So what I want people to take away from the book is the fact that the US has a specific history of the left, and that history of the left is
1: important on so many different levels. Absolutely. And I think you do a wonderful job of sort of highlighting that throughout the book. Um, Well, Dr. Costa Guda, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, So I'll just ask one last question here. Uh, What are you working on now? Well, it's to an extent, it's
2: linked to what I was saying earlier, what I'm working on at the moment, because it's um, what I want to do with my next project and potentially at some point, next book is essentially telling this history about how um, conversations on race um, are ongoing, not just in the American socialist movement, but also in the European socialist movement and in the global left in this period. So what I would like to tell is a story that that places the US in the broader scheme of things and very much place this conversation about race on one side in that broader conversation about um, evolutionism and theories of race. But on the other side, on like colonialism and anti-imperialism. If you move back, we start we end from where we start. I mean, if you switch back to Europe in this moment, the conversation on race, my impression is that it doesn't happen in the workplace in the same way as it happens in the US but it happens in the conversation in in the context of imperialism. So it's like a projected conversation because the uh, racial and social makeup of many European countries is different at the time, but they are all, many of them at least, they are all involved in imperial missions across the world. So you have to kind of, patch together this history to understand better differences on the two sides of the Atlantic, but also link this to the developing of a global left at the time. Sure.
1: That sounds wonderful. It sounds like a great project. And I'll definitely look out for it. And I hope that some of the readers do as, or some of the listeners do as well. Uh, well, Dr. Costaguda Uh, Thank you for being on the show today. Uh, It was a wonderful conversation. It's a great book. uh, And I really enjoyed our, our conversation today. So take care. Thank you very much for having me here. Absolutely.